Turning back this evening in the Word of God, as we have already read it in the Gospel of Luke, and the second chapter there, Gospel of Luke and the second chapter. And as you're turning, let me on behalf of our congregation here offer our congratulations to David and Jordan on their engagement. If they want to tell us about it, then they've got two minutes. I'm sure they'll not be volunteering to do that, but uh, we're very glad to hear that news. And so we are extremely encouraged. Pray the Lord will bless you as you plan your future together. Football tomorrow at 10 o'clock. It wouldn't really be Boxing Day if we didn't have it. And that'll be in the usual venue up on the Henry Jones playing pitches, Church Road. And I'm sure you'll know where that is. You can log it into Google if you have difficulty, and you'll find it. But 10 o'clock, uh, all able-bodied men and uh, women are also invited to come. That's fine as well uh, for the Boxing Day football tomorrow. We are looking at Luke chapter 2, and it is the verse 8 through to 18, as we've already read. We read 20, I know, and we'll read again just two verses, verse 10 and verse 11, which are key to the passage. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And we're thinking about shepherds, I guess songs as well, and sacrifices. That is our theme tonight. Let's, as we come to the Word of God, bow again briefly in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, for all who have come tonight, we pray that thy blessing and the power of Thy Spirit will rest upon each and every one. We pray that Thou wilt, we're on familiar ground, we know. We're out in the shepherd's fields. We have visited this area in Scripture, reading the record many, many times, and maybe even this year already many times. But Lord, we're always conscious that no matter how familiar the passage that I can still speak to our heart and exercise our spirit and deal with us in the way that we right now need to be dealt with. And so we pray, speak to my heart tonight, and may the Word of God be measured and tailored to fit me. And may I not care if it fits the person beside me, as long as the Word of God has application to me. Come, Lord, speak to our hearts now, and be with us in the remainder of this meeting, we ask. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Getting led off from your job is going to be particularly painful at any time of the year, but if you're coming on the run into Christmas and all of a sudden they tell you, by the way, we should have been telling you earlier, but your job is not just on the line, it's over the edge, you're going to lose it, then that's a particularly painful time of year to lose it, especially when uh, some retail uh, outlets are employing extra staff at this time just to get them over the so-called Christmas rush. 
across our country, we know that jobs have been lost. And since COVID as well, the lockdowns, everything else, jobs have been casualties, among many other things. But I wonder if you're aware that in this familiar Christmas story that we have before us in the Gospel of Luke, we're reading it here in Luke 2 tonight, we have a group of shepherds. And essentially what happened here is that they lost their jobs at Christmas. And if not exactly immediately, then ultimately they were going to lose these jobs. In fact, they pretty much lost them because of Christmas. Now, we're familiar with the involvement of the shepherds here in the Christmas story, and we sing about them in our carols. For example, just to give you a little flavor of that, while shepherds watch their flocks by night. Say, ye holy shepherds, say, what your joyful news today. And then that carol that I particularly love, who was he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? And we see their images on Christmas cards. I don't know about your house. Certainly, we haven't received just as many this year. I'm not complaining. I'm not saying you haven't sent me one. Uh, What I am saying is they're probably all hiding up there in bundles in Molusk, just like your cards are too, and will come trundling in bit by bit, uh, maybe right through into the new year. But some of them, no doubt, will have the imagery of shepherds, portrayed on those cards. Maybe we send out the children. At my stage in life, it'll be the grandchildren, and they're dressed up to represent the shepherds in the nativity plays that are so characterized in school. The Christmas night was a glorious night, but it was a night which caused the shepherds' jobs to come under threat. Now, let me explain. First of all, we're looking at an occupation that was assigned. An occupation that was assigned. And if you look with me at Luke 2 and the verse 8, you'll read, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, it's not an unusual occupation in the Bible to come across, because many, many times we have references in Scripture to shepherds and shepherding. In fact, if I were to ask you to guess, just throw out an option as to what kind of a ballpark are we in. Well, I'll not ask you to do that. I'll tell you that over 200 times the shepherds and shepherding would be referenced in Holy Scripture. The first shepherd we come across is way back at the beginning of Scripture. In Genesis 4 and 2, we have Abel, and his designation was as a keeper of sheep. And then we think of some of the greatest names in Jewish history, and they worship or at least that's how they began, and they may well have matured and moved over into other areas as time went on. But I'm thinking of names such as Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David, and we know that David went on to become a king, uh, but these men all began as shepherds or served sometime as shepherds in their lives. By the time of our Savior's arrival in Bethlehem, we find that the role of a shepherd was pretty much scorned and mocked and despised, particularly by the orthodox people of that particular day. A shepherd, ah, oh, that's a, an unlearned kind of a guy. That's a simple kind of man. Shepherding, that's a lowly occupation, really the bottom rung in the ladder, and you want to move on from that. 
understanding how the shepherds were viewed. It helps us, it makes it all the more interesting, I believe, that here on this first Christmas night, we've read about it in Luke chapter 2, we have the announcement of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that most glorious announcement ever to be made was made not to the sages of the day, the wise men, not to the sovereigns of the time, those who were kings ruling in high positions, not to those who were viewed by society as being the leading saints in that society, and certainly not either to the scholars of the day, but that announcement, Jesus is coming, the Messiah is appearing, was made to those lowly shepherds. Now, why did God do this? Ever since this has happened, we have our Lord's comments. In Luke 14, 11, which I believe brings it right into play as to why shepherds were chosen and sovereigns were set to the one side, Jesus said, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's a line and a maxim he repeats again in Luke 18 and the verse 14. Since that time, We've got all kinds of preachers and theologians and philosophers, and they have come to the birth of Jesus Christ, and they have found in His birth a theme for a lifelong of study. They have found here a truth that will exercise and stretch even the wisest of faculties. Why? Here is the question. Why was this great and glorious announcement made to a group of shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night? I don't believe it was an ordinary group of shepherds. That's a baseline point that I will make, and let me explain and flesh that out. We'll say a word or two about the shepherds and also about the sheep, the significance of the shepherds then. Back in the Jewish temple of that day, every morning, every evening, a lamb would have been offered as a sacrifice to God. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't just any old lamb that could have been brought along to the temple and offered as that sacrifice. They had to be without spot. They had to be unblemished. The law of God was crystal clear on this issue. And so we're told in Old Testament times, when these laws are set in stone, Deuteronomy 15.21, Deuteronomy 17 and 1, and if there be any blemish therein, as if it be lame or blind or of any ill blemish, thou shalt not sacrifice it unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish, or any, here's a word they used, evil favoredness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. The word blemish, what does it mean? Anything that's spotted, anything that's stained. Those lambs offered for sacrifice could not be sick, could not be lame, could not be blind or deformed in any way. There couldn't be a sore or a scab or a scar or a scratch on those animals, or it would disqualify them as a sacrifice that God required. And so the law repeatedly tells us, time without number, it has to be without blemish. So you've got an issue right there. 
How do you keep an ongoing line of unblemished lambs coming to the temple morning and evening for that sacrifice? Where are you going to get such quality of lambs? What they did was the temple authorities had their own private flocks of sheep. And it is the thought of many scholars that the sheep being watched over by these shepherds, we're reading about in Luke chapter 2, were sheep out of one of these private flocks. They're not raising sheep here to shear them and then sell on their wool for profit. These are not sheep going to be fattened up and then butchered and put on the table to fill hungry stomachs. These are sheep designated for sacrifices, and those shepherds are shepherds that have been assigned the role of watching over this particular flock of sheep. Approximately one mile outside of Bethlehem, there was a special watchtower called the Migdal Eder, the Tower of Eder, which means the Tower of the Flock. An old Bible commentator, I don't often use him, but Albert Barnes says in his notes on the Holy Scriptures, for signifying in its very name, by a sort of prophecy, this, the shepherds at the birth of the Lord. Barn said, there at this place, Migdol Edom, at the tower, there Jacob fed the sheep. Genesis 35, 21. And there, since it was hard by Bethlehem, the shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night, saw and heard the angels singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That was the significance of these shepherds. But then, what about the symbolism of the sheep themselves? The symbolism of the sheep. These are sheep that have been set apart to die as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of man. Under the Old Testament economy, that's how it was done. That's what separated them from all other lambs. That's what made them special. But what made them even more special was that every single lamb in the flock going to be offered as a sacrifice, because their blood couldn't take away sin, they were pointing to someone who would. Someone alone who could. And every lamb in that flock would have foreshadowed, would have pictured, would have typified the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would die, John tells us in John 1.29, for the sins of the world. Qualifications? Never lowered, innocent, without blemish. And when we think of the sacrifice required for our sins, only an innocent, innocent one can serve as substitute for the guilty. And so the one that the sheep was picturing, that one was without spot, was without blemish. And when I turn to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, the verse 18 and 19, and he's talking about Jesus Christ and his blood atonement for our sin on Calvary, he says, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. You couldn't pay your way out of the place of sin you were in, from the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But how do we get out? But by 
the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And there we are, the reference back to these sheep held by these shepherds, the spotless one, the person in whom there is no guile, the person in whom no sin will ever be found. He is God's spotless lamb, God's lamb without blemish. No wonder the hymn writer said, Come, all ye redeemed, and unite in high hallelujahs to God, and sing with increasing delight, O sing of the Lamb and His blood. Sing, sing His superlative worth, till we see His full glory and obtain the chorus resound through the earth of worthy the Lamb that was slain. W.D. Davies wrote a book called Paul and Rabbinic Judaism, and he makes a claim within the book, and I can't verify it, but every year he says at the temple in Jerusalem they sacrificed 1,093 lambs, 113 bulls, 37 rams, 32 goats. Now, those he emphasizes are only the official sacrifices. Didn't count the private sacrifices, of which there would have been so, so many more. But add the number up, year after year after year, and that number, official sacrifices and private sacrifices, would have been absolutely staggering. But every one of those hundreds of thousands and more of animals that were offered along through time, they were pointing in God's economy to the one lamb that would come. Then one night, in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem, that lamb was born. The world thought it was back in July of 1996. They thought it was the news of the century. What was that news? Oh, they had a cloned lamb. They called it Dolling, and they felt this is a great scientific achievement. And I'm sure those that were alive back then can well remember the news breaking in the build-up to that news for many weeks before it. It was the news, not of the year, not of the century, but the news of the ages when Jesus, the eternal Lamb of God, was born at Bethlehem. Later we come to a scene on the banks of the River Jordan. Crowd then is held spellbound by the thunderous voice, by the prophetic message of a rugged and maybe even an odd-looking prophet that suddenly had emerged out of the wilderness, and he came with a message of repentance. That was his first note every time, repent ye therefore and be converted. Every eye was fixed, every ear, it was riveted upon the message this man was announcing. We read about it in Matthew 3 and the verse 11. I indeed, he said, baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And one day, as that man is preaching, one step out from the crowd, made his way down the banks into the water. As John looked at him as he approached, he shouted out the words that have rumbled down and echoed through the centuries, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. 
you're possibly looking at the screen and wondering, what is that jumble in the bottom corner? What is that about? Let me explain. I was recently reading about the Chinese language. I had no desire to learn it, even less when I started to read about it, because I discovered there are 56,000 characters in the Chinese language, and we think that English with 26 letters in the alphabet is difficult. Much of the language is made up of pictograms and then ideograms, symbols representing words, and the Chinese character, here's where my interest was taken, the Chinese character for righteousness is very interesting. In fact, it's made up of two separate characters. One of the two separate characters for righteousness in Chinese stands for a lamb, and the other, the second character, stands for me. Do you know how they arrange them? The lamb is placed above me, as in the picture that is here on screen. The Lamb directly is above me, and when those two characters come together, another character is formed, and that is righteousness. And for me, that's an illustration of the gospel. God took the Lamb on Calvary, and then He took me, who had no shelter, who had no way of paying the debt that I owed, and He put me under Him. He put God, the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb between me and the wrath of God that justly should have fallen upon my head, and he absorbed all my punishment, kept it off me. He took away my sins, and having lived for me and died for me, he declared me in the books of God to be righteous. On those Judean hillsides, that first Christmas night, those shepherds are watching over their flocks, but they're not just any old shepherds and any old flock. They're shepherds who had been assigned this responsibility of watching over little lambs where every bleat was saying, the Lamb of God is coming, and we are just a picture of Him. But we've looked at the first thing tonight, an occupation that was assigned. Secondly, we're looking at an occupation that was abandoned. One that was assigned, but then an occupation that was abandoned. It might have felt to the shepherds like it's just another night. We do this all the time, looking after our flocks. What's different tonight? Then suddenly, that night turned into one that was going to be remembered by them until their dying day and celebrated by all of us right through the ages of earth's history. Little did those shepherds realize when they bedded down the flock for the night, their life as well as the lives of countless millions were about to be changed. It was a night to be remembered, and that's putting it mildly. It all appeared with very dramatic swiftness. All was quiet. Picture the scene. You're there, one of the shepherds, and there's a, an occasional bleat going up from the flock, and the normal signs of the, the night, and maybe the rustle of a bush or two, and a bit of wind, and then all of a sudden, it happened. First, there was a grand appearance. We read in Luke 2 and 9, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. No surprise about that. You too, as well as I, would have been terrified at this occurrence without warning, 
without expectation for that evening, the angel of the Lord no less appeared, and the heavenly brightness of the glory of the Lord, the manifestation of His presence and of His power, flashed all around them. No wonder they were frightened. If it had been one of us, well, let me illustrate it like this. I think we'd have been like that guy who fell into an open grave one night. Somebody had dug a grave and failed to cover it over. This guy is dandering through the cemetery at night and he drops in. And he tried and he tried to get out and he couldn't get out. The signs were collapsing around him. And finally he just sat down in a corner and he thought, I'll wait until morning when somebody will be about and I'll just start calling and they will get me out. Sometime later, another guy did the same thing, came along, wandered through the graveyard, fell into the same grave. And like the first, he did everything he possibly could think of to get up the sides and out of that grave. Finally, the first fellow who'd been sitting quietly alone in the corner all this time while the second guy was trying to get out, he just said, you might as well forget about it. You're not getting out. The second guy got out in a flash. That's all he needed to hear. Those shepherds, terrified, terrified by this grand appearance. And then there was a great announcement that we read about in verse 10 through to 12 of Luke chapter 2. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Isn't it wonderful how when the Word of God comes, it just comes directly to the point of our need. These men are fearing and God's Word says, opening line, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in a swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Here's an announcement that calms their fears. It's an announcement as well that generates great joy. What was the announcement? Nothing less than this. The Savior for sinners has been born. Take note of the word born for a moment. In verse 11 of Luke 2, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. In the original Greek, the word born stands closer to the start of the sentence than it does in our English translation. And it would read literally, because born, second word in, because born to you this day. And it's as if to say, long ago, the Savior has been promised, 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 promised by prophet after prophet after prophet down through the centuries of time. He has been promised, but the Savior long promised has now been finally born. What has happened? The promise of God has been fulfilled. It always is. This was the one Abel was thinking of when he offered up a lamb on the altar. This was the one Abraham had in mind when he said to Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. Genesis 22 for a burnt offering. This was the one represented 
by the sprinkling of its blood and daubing of that blood on the doorposts and lintel of all of those houses in Egypt where the Hebrews were the night before or the night they exited that place of their bondage. This was the one that Aaron and his sons would have been thinking about as they offered up sacrifice after sacrifice upon the brazen altar at the tabernacle and then later in his line at the temple This was the one that those sheep on those Judean hillsides this night would have been pointing to, would have been foreshadowing. He will be born. He will be born. He will be born. He is born. He's here. He has arrived. With that glorious announcement, there came a glorious anthem. And you can hear the melody breaking out in verse 13 and 14 of Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Back in those days when a boy was born in Palestine, it was an occasion for great joy. They get into a big celebration about the birth of a boy. When the birth was near, friends and local musicians gathered around the house, didn't know it. Would it be a boy? Would it be a girl? But when the birth was announced and when it was said, it is a boy, those magicians, musicians broke out into music and song and there was congratulations and rejoicing up and down the streets. Girls and ladies, I hate to tell you this, but if it was a girl, the musicians went silently and regretfully away. I don't agree with that custom, but that was the custom of the day. Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary, they're away from home, out of their natural local environment here. And so instead, what happens... God gave His own celebration of this miraculous birth, sent His own musicians to the scene, sent His own singers along, those angels, to welcome the birth of a son into our world. And how did the shepherds respond to all that happened that night? You'll find it in the next verse in Luke 2 and verse 15. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. Shepherds, you need to be with your flocks. That's your job. You're to be on the hillsides looking after your sheep. That is your assignment, caring for the temple lambs. That's your occupation. But momentarily, at least their numbers were thinned. I think they were totally left in the shelter of the fold, and down they went, leaving their job, leaving that flock, and taking off for Bethlehem, We must see the evidence of the Messiah who has been born. What greater news could ever be heard? So we thought of an occupation that was assigned, an occupation that, no matter how briefly at this time, it was abandoned, and an occupation that was assumed. Because as we read on, Luke 2 and the verse 16, we're told, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. 
Now, as they're coming motoring down those hillsides, there is one thing in their mind. They have a primary purpose now. Everything else has fallen into second place. Throw aside your staff if you need to be. Throw aside the rod. Leave the flock for a moment. Go as quickly as you can and find the Christ. They find the place exactly as the angels had said. He's lying in a manger. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Here he is. It wasn't a very sophisticated scene. We're not talking about high-class hotel accommodation. We're talking about an area that due to the proximity of the animals and everything else, hay and animal smells would have been pungent in the air, ground cold and hard, maybe cobwebs hanging from the ceiling, a lowlier place of birth you could not imagine, but I doubt The smell or the situation held much interest to those shepherds. They were captivated with the child lying in the manger. The Savior has come. Think of the Savior they saw. Verse 17 of Luke 2, we have these words. And when they had seen it or seen him. Can you be in the shoes of the the sandals of the shepherds again? And you walk into this area. And your eyes are drawn to a young mother leaning her head against the shoulder of a young father who's sitting beside her. And then your eyes look down to the baby that is resting in her arms. And you're standing in silence and in awe. And you can hardly believe it is you who was getting the privilege to be here at this moment in time. And you see the newborn be above Bethlehem, the eternal Son of God. And in their minds they're thinking, so... This is him. He is a baby. His face prunish and red. His cry, despite what a way in a manger would have us sing, no crying he makes. His cry was distinct, strong and healthy. The helpless and piercing cry of a newborn suckles by that young mother and squirms in her arms as little hands and feet peek out from under the blanket every once in a while, and yet they know, what are we looking at here? Majesty in the middle of the mundane. Trust God to come down as low as this, to the place of our humiliation, and humble Himself, and become as a servant. Here's supreme holiness, surrounded by the filth of that place. Here's divinity in this mean abode. Here's the baby who had created the worlds. Here is the babe who would overlooked and was still and is today the glue of the galaxies. Here's the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes that until recently had worn the garments of glory. Everyone in heaven worshipped him. Here's the baby who would have occupied as the eternal son, the throne of heaven. This baby, the Savior, this baby, the Lamb of God, come for our redemption. He'll be sacrificed for you. He'll be sacrificed for me. Verse 17 tells us, when they had seen him, They made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. In other words, not only the Savior they saw, but the salvation 
they spoke about. When you meet Christ, when you really meet Christ, when you are changed by that encounter, when you are saved by His power, you'll not be able to contain your enthusiasm. You'll want to do what these shepherds did and tell it around. There's life in the risen Lord. Now, let me use my imagination and yours again for a moment. I don't know how many shepherds were there, but let's say there were, well, we'll we'll home in on two of them, James, Zacharias. Maybe James is saying, Zacharias, do you know who we're looking at? We're looking at God here. This is the promised Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. And Zacharias is saying, whispering to James, I know. And Zacharias pauses to gaze intently at the baby that's so contentedly sleeping in Mary's arms. And then he says, James, you know what this means, don't you? James looks at him. His eyes are growing as wide as saucers. And he nods his head. Yes, I do. James says, this means our job's on the line here. The Lamb of God has come. They're not going to longer need this line of sacrificial lambs that we're looking after. Because as the hymn writer said, those types, they were only pointing to the Paschal Lamb of God. Then they're all going to become redundant. Hallelujah, that hymn writer says, hallelujah, I'm depending on, and we say, His blood, Christ's blood. No more sacrificial lambs were needed. No offerings had to be made. Once the offering on Calvary was made, the Lamb of God had come to be offered as the eternal sacrifice for sins, the once and for all sacrifice for our iniquities. After that point on Calvary, no other offering for sin was needed. And so effectively, and potentially they lost their jobs, but they gained another. They gained another. Because they became evangelists, heralds, broadcasters of the good news. And we find that they left, and yes, they did go up to their sheep in the hillside again, but on the way, everybody they met, they told them Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, has been born. Now, during this Christmas season, our minds have been filled, and maybe for the men especially yesterday, with thoughts of gifts that we have to buy, ladies, meals we have to prepare. I know that's ongoing. That'll be a big thing tomorrow as well. Maybe a party we have to attend. All the normal things that we associate with the season But the real meaning and what will impact our hearts about Christmas is God's Lamb came to take away the sins of the world. And you and I need to be sure that we have called upon Him to be our Savior. That we have cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I can't work out my own salvation. Do things that will compensate for all of the iniquities that I have committed. I must claim him today as my Savior. Let's do that. If we haven't already, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world.